The following episode's content is circulated around the topic of suicide. If this is something that you're having issues with right now, don't be afraid to call for help. For immediate assistance, dial 1-800-273-8255 or dial 988 to reach the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Please take care of yourselves. If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at liveonfourlegspod. Hey everybody now, welcome to Live on Four Legs, a definitive live Pearl Jam podcast, and we're here for this episode. This was unannounced. This is releasing around the fifth anniversary of the loss of Chris Cornell, and this has been something that's been on my mind for a while, just for the podcast, how we can pay tribute to him. A couple years ago, there were some ideas to potentially do a Temple of the Dog show from 2016 and do that. And I really thought for this moment, it would make sense to cover something Pearl Jam-wise that he was a part of and to sort of remember his legacy throughout music, to sort of remember who he was and what he did for this band and what he did overall for Soundgarden and Audioslave and every project that he was a part of and just pay tribute to it all because even after five years it feels like it was just yesterday and it feels like it's still impossible that it happened i think a lot of people still feel that way so hopefully for a lot of people this is affected hopefully you know we can kind of relive on some of the good stuff that chris was a part of and today we're going to do the irvine show from Lollapalooza. that was the, the last Lollapalooza show from the festival and they did three Irvine shows in a row so this was the final one and the next week they would play Drop in the Park so this is right at at the time where Pearl Jam is is really picking up but of course the Cornell connection can't be understated enough so let's get right into it Randy Sobel John Farrar hello I want to start with this it's tough to sort of think back on it I know 
I maybe have more of a personal connection to Cornell than you might. I don't want to, uh, like, just from what I, I gather. I know you're not as much of a Soundgarden fan. Yeah. Never but, really hit me in the same way. But I, I think, you know, just telling the stories here, I, I just want to know, do you remember the moment five years ago when you heard what happened? And you remember, like, what that day was like? Because it's something that I thought about for weeks. Yeah, I just remember it being such a shock because you think that by 2016, 2017, that we're that we're done with this. That like those ghosts have been exercised and those, those demons have have been pushed to the side, and, and we we've gone through and like we made it out the other side, right? And I'm saying we, but obviously I'm not, you know, in the circle of of this. But you know, we as a fan base. And, you know, them as a band and a community and a town. You think you, you, you think that we, we, you know, we thought we were on the other side of this thing. And it turns out that one more snuck up and, uh, and, and, and got him. And I just remember feeling just really, you know, I've been, again, I, you know, Cornell's, you know, Soundgarden's, it's not something that, that's on my my favorites list. I know a lot of people. I'm probably in the minority here on that, but I just remember, just God, like what a tragedy to have made it this far, and then and then lose it now because they had come back and the the temple shows. Like I remember, I didn't get a chance to go, but you know, listening to those bootlegs sounded sounded so good. They were doing lots of different stuff, and it felt like. Like they were really rejuvenated, yeah. And then you know the the stuff comes out. You know afterwards, you know we we find out you know what happened and everything, and just such a tragedy. And you just wonder, like, just another blow to to that community, and like, how many of these things are they going to have to go through? Like, just awful. That was a bad stretch. That was a really bad stretch for anybody that liked and got through with that period of music because a couple months before that i believe it was december don't quote me on that it might have been it must have been december 2016 that uh scott wyland had passed it was it was very it it wasn't very long It, it was it was it was right there it was right before it and then in the aftermath of this some of the stories that you hear that are going around like of people that are really, really close to him. Uh, one of them was Chester Bennington. And I, you know, I think he spoke at his funeral procession. Uh, some stories had come out about like it, what his relationship with Chris was like. And then I want to say it was no later than June. Chester was gone. The same exact thing. And it wasn't like we were losing all of these great musicians that have accomplished so much. It felt like all of these people that had a chance didn't take that chance, had a chance to, to, to continue what they were doing, decided not to. And that was what was really hard about it because, you know, you, you hear things sometimes with people you know, and that hurts you too, 
but you know, not everybody that you know is going to know somebody that's connected within your circle. For this, it's like the world gets involved in this, and everybody has some connection and some sort of way that they're they're trying to make sense of this, and it's extremely tough because the situation is so fragile and nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody ever wants to talk about the epidemic of suicide. People can say it's too sad. People can say it's, it's just something they don't want to think about, but the more you talk about something, the more you're able to help prepare to prevent it. And, you know, it it just feels like when one happens, they kind of fall almost in a domino effect in a way, which is just really scary and sad. Uh, I I go back to Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade that died within weeks of each other as well. Uh, And then even, you know, it wasn't a suicide, but losing Tom Petty in the same year that we lost all those, uh, that we lost Cornell and and Chester Bennington and and Weiland. It's really difficult to, sort of measure that up and and even now five years later where it's somewhere in the middle of I can't believe he's gone and I can't believe it's been five years already and I think it could turn into ten years and almost sort of be the same thing you think that sometimes these people that perform on stage that they're you know, they're giants that, you know, they're almost unbreakable, that they're untouchable. And, and that's just not the case. Sometimes it's, it's worse than, than you think. And it's a really difficult thing to have to talk about. It's a really difficult thing to have to bring up. But I think the cha- where the challenge lies is, is how we take that information and use it to better ourselves to treat people in our community better so we don't see this to be aware of signs which sometimes there are no signs and that's the scariest part sometimes there are none it's just all of it is 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 just scary to think about but like now that you kind of talk about and and go back a couple of months and ed did the interview with New York Times Magazine, and uh, they and they discussed Cornell specifically about you know, and then when the Earthlings played at Beacon Theater, he kind of tied in Brother of the Cloud to that 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 had some sort of connection, and in that interview, it didn't seem like Ed was very comfortable talking about it at first, but then something must have clicked and there must have been sort of some connection that he had with the writer where, you know, talking about it was okay and talking about it can get you through it. And if you sort of push it aside, act like it doesn't exist, then you'll never find a way to help when it's needed. And I think that's, that's anything to take out of something like this, then I got nothing else because it's just extremely saddening. I I spent 
you know, hours upon hours upon hours listening to every project that Cornell had been involved with. I feel like I went on a whirlwind of his career and just was on every roller coaster with him. And, you know, I, I got a text that morning and I woke up and my wife specifically, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, but she specifically didn't tell me she, she when she woke up and got ready for work, she didn't tell me. And she, I guess she wanted me to figure out on my own. And I woke up to a text from a friend who was actually supposed to go with to the temple of the dog show in 2016, but he couldn't make it. And in all caps, it just said, Chris Cornell is fucking dead. And that text was sent at about five in the morning. Waking up to that at around nine in the morning uh, was just, just felt broken. You know, like it wasn't like a part of me was gone, but it felt like a part of the world was gone, if you know what I mean. So all I have to just say right now is just the kindness that you share with others can make a huge difference into how they making somebody feel better, whether or not you know what's going on with them or not. You know, just being kind, being patient with people, understanding, accepting them. That could make a world of difference. So if we could start on that, then I think we're on the right track. I don't know how the hell you transition out of that, uh, but I'm going to try. So as I mentioned, this was the last night of the Lollapalooza tour. Soundgarden was a part of this. They toured the whole entire way. And of course, you know, being basically when when Ed moved in, you know, it, it felt like along with the band, Chris Cornell was there as sort of a, a welcoming guide to him. Like, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what places to eat in the city. I'll, I'll show you around. You know, if you need a spare room, I'll give you a room kind of deal. And, you know, uh, of course, Chris at this time was was reeling from the death of Andy Wood. and it felt like maybe Chris needed to make that sort of same connection with Ed. And, and he did. He had a very good relationship with Ed the minute he moved in. Yeah, they talk about that in, in PJ20 a little bit. Like, he needed someone to, to lean on. Like, he, he needed to fill that, that hole. And Ed was there, you know. And Ed looked up to him like... He he was a Soundgarden fan, so yeah. Here's this here's this young guy that kind of needs mentoring, and here's this kind of elder statesman of the scene who's been around already for five or six years, been in bands since he was just a kid, who's who needs someone to mentor. So they were kind of made for each other. Yeah, I think the story goes like within their first week, or might have been like the first couple of days. You know, Temple was recording, and and he pulled. Ed up and he's like, Hey, you know, let's, let's see what you could do with this. And after one take, he was just blown away. And uh, that's what would become of hunger strike. And of course that's some of the legacy that he leaves behind through Pearl jam through temple of the dog. And it's really just a very small part, but they're always part of the conversation together. When you think about, 
you know, the, the, those two bands gaining that popularity right in the middle of, of 1992 and, and hear this record, this tribute record that's been out for a year, people are now figuring out that the two of the biggest bands that are in heavy rotation now, their lead singers are singing this song together and then it just blows up. So it becomes a big thing. And you can see the friendship between Cornell and, and Cameron with the rest of the band. And, and you know, Cameron's going to be part of the story too. He has to be, you know? So you, you see that kind of resonate and it just feels like this whole entire tour was more of a bonding experience. If you've seen their pictures all over the place of, and there's like a wooden room or something like that. And all the sound garden members are together. All the Pearl jam mm-hmm. members are together sitting on couches. They're like iconic photos. They really are iconic photos. And yeah, like the two bands were almost inseparable. So, yeah, this, this show has a real, like, last day of school energy like you know they've they've kind of become brothers through this this whole tour over over the summer like riding in the buses riding in the vans and this definitely has a feel of like you know where we we made it through it we we got through this we're gonna have a good time and it's it's just becomes like just from the from the first note it just has they just look like they're you know kids in school who are on the last day of school like bursting through those doors like we're free we did it like just the jubilation that is just palpable on stage like you can really feel that they are in a really good place like they've they've grown this summer like yeah this is the summer of 1992 like that was the summer of Pearl Jam you could not escape it and like they were still playing you know probably first thing I think they were one of the first or second band to play you know the show's like still very bright in the afternoon but yeah. the place is packed like there's still a pit going like they were one of the one of the bands to see already yeah I, I think that like it didn't start out that way. Like I think when they signed up for that, you know, of course it was probably earlier in the year and they were thinking, okay, well, you know, ministry is here and ice cube is here. And of course the red hot chili peppers and Soundgarden are here. So yeah, we're going to put Pearl jam kind of towards the bottom. And I think they were, I think they were even before Jesus and Mary chain, if I believe. Yeah. So, and then at this time, like now people sort of midsummer, that know that they have this, these tickets that might've bought these tickets for red hot chili peppers are now like, we have to make sure that we're there to see Pearl jam. Like, and the whole crowd you could see on the YouTube video is, is there is, is watching. So, all right, why don't we get into it a little bit? Let's get in with the first song in the set list. It's Bob O'Reilly, which of course, mostly everybody knows as a closing song or part of the bread and butter that we talk about. This is the one and only time that they've ever opened a show with it. And if you want something that's going to define, like you said, like last day of school, school closing, I feel like that's it. I feel like it's a bunch of kids just singing their favorite songs. And it doesn't have to be their songs. It's just songs that they love. And look, it's not a long set at all. It's, It's less than an hour, but there are more covers in here. Then there are actual Pearl Jam songs and all the Pearl yeah, Jam songs yeah. that are in here, uh, hard to imagine, notwithstanding, are all like the hits of 10, 
Even flow, Jeremy alive, yeah. porch. Think back to 1992. Bob O'Reilly comes out in what 1970, I think. On who's next? 70 or 71, yeah. This uh, this song was only 22 years old. That would be like a band now playing a song from 2000, like a Stroke song or something right. like that. Right. Oh, yeah. That that, yeah, made, that made me feel old when I when I thought about that. But yeah, it's just rowdy from the very beginning, like immediate energy bouncing up and down like you know and again you you feel it and like they feel like they're kind of doing something a little bit illicit like you know it's that that kind of feeling you get when you're a kid and you're gonna do something that's against the rules like oh we're gonna we're gonna open up with bob o'reilly like yeah they, i'm sure that gave him a little more energy to come out and and try to like destroy this crowd like they always do especially you know with the next song too like this is probably the only show in their history that opens up with two straight covers well it's it's funny that you mentioned that after talking with dave jantosh from live footsteps we got the numbers on this technically there are three shows that started off with two covers but there's a little it's a little bit dicey so this is one of them obviously the other one that I don't think counts at all is the VH1 Rock Vonners where they played Love Rain or Me and The Real Me and then you have to go back to a little bit earlier in 1992 at Stockholm Sweden where they opened the show with Driven to Tears and Throw Your Arms Around Me however that can be debated not quite sure if that counts as a preset or not but there you go there's the three there's some kid on stage for bob o'reilly i know like they introduce uh william from jesus and mary chain comes out and plays for for sonic reducer but i couldn't tell who it was that was out for bob o'reilly probably someone and said yeah Ed said there was some before he mentioned uh, William. He said that there was somebody else, and I couldn't make out yeah. a name. I couldn't yeah. put two and two together, so I don't know if it was that person or not. But it seemed <laughs> like it wasn't somebody that was wearing out their welcome. Like it was somebody that yeah, was supposed to be there. Like yeah. they, there was no security trying to push him off, and Ed's you know jumping around and dancing with him too. So yeah, I, I think legit was supposed to be there. But Sonic Reducer, man, like think about at this time and what this song was at this time, you have to go back to September 8th, which is my birthday, which would have been my sixth birthday in 1992, <laughs> which I love Sonic reducer back Ooh. then. My favorite song mm-hmm. right next to uh, 
you know, uh, Raffi songs and, and the likes. And they debuted that Lollapalooza show. The next night is the VMA show where Ed suggests that's the song that we want to do. Gets really pissed off when MTV gives some pushback and he loses that fight and they have to play the hit. They have to play Jeremy. And they play it at all these Irvine shows. It's at every single one of these. So now it's been played four times at this point. Bob O'Reilly, that, that was only the tenth time. Yeah. So, yeah, you're kicking off with two covers that they almost, at that time, never do. Of course, they're common rotation songs now, but you hear Ed in this, too. Uh, you know, the I got I got my time machine, I got my MTV, like, That's right. thrown in that connection there. Still, still thinking about it. Mm-hmm, of course. wasn't very forgiving if you kind of stepped on his toes the wrong way if, if you kind of looked at him the wrong way he he held a grudge for a very very long time and it, it took him a while to get over that stuff but uh yeah this this was in prime fuck mtv kind of era and i wouldn't be surprised that somewhere around this time at one of these shows they were thinking backstage yeah we're never making a music video again could be yeah the jeremy video had only been out for couple uh, weeks maybe yeah, a month. month yeah great performance here and oh, yeah. you know you, you only had about four or five cover songs in your arsenal you had these two you had rocking you had i got a feeling and mm-hmm. really I, i'm counting suggestion here even though they used it more as a tag because they've expanded upon it and stuff like that so i'll, I'll count it there I can't think of any other that they had no. for this time period. No. Maybe little pieces of, like, you know, tearing, which I think was a tag for Porch yeah. in the show. But, yeah. yeah, not much else. So they're really getting the songs and getting the stuff they love out of the way early. And Ed addresses that. He says, So what do you think? No Pearl Jam songs today. Okay, maybe one. They get even flow, which they got. They got four. They got four Pearl Jam songs. They got five non Pearl Jam songs. So, yeah. honestly, if you're at all four of these shows, like all three of these shows, then you shouldn't give a shit. Like you're just having fun. You can tell. I'm sure. The you still entire... got a whole of music to get through. Yeah. Like, right. Right. Yeah, the the whole thing is an experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, look, I think that this time period is, of course, the I call it the era of Jeff because Jeff is just. It's the visual aspect. Jeff and Ed are the ones that are just thrashing around stage and, and really making this kind of a moment to kind of feast your eyes upon. And and Jeff is all over the place from his side to Mike's side to Stone's side all around. He is unstoppable. And I think that's kind of one of the one of the best parts a little bit about this, this era is just watching them have that kind of youthful spirit to them. Yeah, absolutely. Even flow to Stone and Jeff together. The the early years watching them as 
always always very good two like Dave A just powerful on even flow you always kind of forget because you know we're so used to hearing versions of Cameron and like those have become so good but like the power that Dave was was playing with on this is it's something else and then yeah just a, a standout version of even flow like we we, we always kind of like, oh even flow here does a thing but this one's this one's very good highlight and you know there's a little bit of like a reprise or improv of sorts here kind of before they get back you know in the middle of the bridge somewhere he says i don't need anyone i don't need anyone after the solo so that's kind of like a little sonic producer reprise a in a way still so, thinking about it yep of course of course yeah uh, that is when that one buds and not very much later it'll be a christmas single and it'll be on everybody's mind so a quick little hard to imagine snippet in between these two songs Ooh, very very quick We'll get into that in just a minute. We got a lot more to get into before that, though. Jeremy, of course, this is the song, biggest song in the world, only four days after the VMAs, and their disdain for playing it that night at the VMAs, I'm sure by what the speech would would come up in just a second, which is just kind of haunting to to have to hear that speech where we are right now and what this episode is 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 about. You know, I, I just very surprised that at that point they didn't abandon that song completely. But how could you? It's 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 got every piece that you love from early versions of Jeremy with the fierce like Daddy didn't give attention like that. Those lines, I'm always a huge fan of that. And then Ed getting on the ground, kind of screaming on the ground at the end, and then up towards the crowd. Lots of movement from Stone and Jeff. They're kind of like bumper cars out there. All over the place, yeah. There's tons of energy, and you know Ed's going to say it in a second. Like, how do you not want to play that song every day? But there's so many things about it that just sort of kind of tarnish, you know, whether it's about the song content or it's about the what was happening in mainstream music at the time. Like, there's a lot of, I guess, negative scope about it. This is kind of going to go into the speech here. There's another hard to imagine tease, and and it'll all kind of, you know, come together in a second. There's or so. a there's a trilogy of hard to imagine. It Jesus. really is. This is right. the second part of the trilogy. <laughs> Ed's quote here is, um, it's really again with what this show, the reasoning for us talking about it right now. It's tough to hear him say this. I'm so fucking glad I don't have to sing that song anymore. No, I mean, I like singing it all. I like everything about it. I just don't like having to think about someone killing themselves every fucking day of my life. It's just depressing to think, you know. Some days it feels like that's it. Like, that's it. I lie. I don't give a fuck. Hit me again. I don't give a fuck. Nothing else can hurt you, so you decide to take your own life. Don't do it. Take another punch and then hit him back. I guess it's his way of getting that frustration out. Like he was saying that it's just all frustrating and, and depressing to think about. But I think he was sort of struggling with those kind of themes because I think those kind of themes at that point in his life had some sort of connection with him and, and knowing what the subject matter that 
we're talking about today makes this really difficult. Makes this really difficult to hear this quote in this show. Yeah, and and early on too, like you know, it's it's hard to kind of think back, you know, thirty years ago, but they were in a they were in a different frame of mind then. This isn't all that stuff is is still fresh from from Andy and all the you know stuff that we talked about. So it's you know you have to kind of remember like yeah they were they were still young and they were still dealing with and processing that stuff like and here they are like on this like rocket ship to stardom at the time and like trying to balance that with with all that like yeah it's just you can't even imagine what they were going through on a day-to-day basis yep you definitely get that sense and a lot of it kind of has to deal with there's still kind of figuring out how to mature and while they they get these things and they kind of understand how severe they are they don't you know from ed's standpoint i don't think he exactly knows how to express it yet it's frustrating him it's it's he's got some angst towards it and that's the way he's going to do he's better putting pen to paper at this time than talking to thousands of people about it. I think that would come much later, you know, more closer to the time where you would kind of coin him as, as dad Ed. But back then he was what, 27 years old or so. Like just if that's for any age, it's tough for any age, but you know, really tough at that age to sort of, want to be thinking about that and, and all that. So again, he's, he's always been able to be vulnerable and kind of raw on stage. Like he's, you're, you always, like we always say, like you always know how he's feeling. He's, he's not shy about, you know, letting people in on stage and he's, you know, he's always going to give you these little glimpses into how he's doing and how he's feeling. And this little speech is part of that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Then we go into an actual improv with hard to imagine. kind of the content and we talked about it a lot look if you're a patron mm-hmm. then go back to the the patreon episode that we did on the evolution of hard to imagine very good of course and we talked about what the content of the song was and sort of how that connected with especially this quote where he's talking about like a man from new orleans and he's not quite connecting with you know the a younger generation so to speak and uh it has a little indication of what the song would become for hard to imagine. So, you know, I don't think we can expand upon it that much, but yeah, if if you want more of that, go check out the, the evolution episode alive comes right after this. And there's a lot of thrashing around camera zooms in. And we talked about this when we did the great Western forum a couple weeks ago, 
Mike is wearing a skirt. Second time in a month that we've seen Mike wear a skirt. Yeah. yeah. Out of all of the episodes that we've done, we have never seen Mike wear a skirt before. <laughs> and this is just, this is skirt month, I suppose. I don't, I got no, yeah. no yeah. real answer for that, but yeah, it, it classic 1992 for them. You know, alive was pretty on point every single night. It wasn't your show closer yet. That would kind of go to porch more, but it was, uh, it was a song everybody knew and it was a song everybody wanted to hear. So they did it justice. And just more Ed screaming. Like he's, he's screaming that. Yeah. 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 Part at the end, like in the moment. And again, just that you can see the, the crowd up front too. And they can talk about that in a second too. Like there's a little mosh pit here. He's gonna he's gonna kind of make fun of them, but yeah, he's he's kind of feeding off that energy a little bit. They're they're getting some good energy from this crowd early in the afternoon. Yeah, that's that's what what's gonna come right here. And if you want to hear one of the weirdest mashups that you've ever heard, it's hard to imagine and Rolling Stones Angie noodled together. Yeah, like fair real quick, just like two seconds of each one. little odd but you know that that's sort of what stone was working on and that's sort of what mike's music that he was listening to at the time so i guess it it works and ed's quote here about the pit very very good said you think that's a pit i hate to inform you but i've seen a few of these and this ain't no pit want me to come down there and show you well maybe i'll make good on his word porch up next mid bridge during the solo Ed says to the crowd, can you pass me back? Can you pass me back? He's like making sure everybody in front is eyes on him, paying attention to what's going on, and everybody's kind of preparing themselves. And then he kind of rears back, sort of like, uh, you know, when, when you rear back on the pinball machine, and then when you let go, running start, and he gets a massive leap into almost what the middle of that pit was. Uh, he really gets some distance on that. Very, very, very cool visual on that. And yeah, he gets to be right in the middle of it, like he just said. Yeah, he was saying, like, pass me back, take me over, like over and over again, like building it up, like kind of waiting for them to acknowledge, like, okay, okay. Like he, he wanted to make sure they were going to be up for it. But also, like even before that, there's like a there's like a drum solo in this in this porch, like for all of Dave's like technical prowess and you know power like hey we don't you don't usually hear a lot of like Abrazi's drum solos but he he gets one here it's pretty cool but the moment is that jumping in the pit and you see like the rush of like people and like he kind of like absorbs the the crowd like absorbs the the blow and then like pushes back and like it yeah it brought me back to to a lot of those 90s mosh pits being a part of couldn't do that now at age 43 but no as as a younger man uh, yeah. i would have been would have been right up there oh uh, yeah yeah and i think along the lines of dave's little drum solo there i think it was just it felt like it was kind of like a little break in between what mike and stone were doing together and i think dave was just kind of capitalized off of it i don't, I don't think yeah. any of that was planned i think that he just he saw a moment and he was like all right fuck it i'll go for it and, and it even seemed like mike and jeff were like just having a conversation during part of this like they weren't even playing it was just just 
Dave and, and Stone. And like they're just kind of like for like a long time, like like a, over a minute, they're just kind of like hanging out talking. I don't know what that was about. Well, I think that's a mystery to everybody, unless you yeah. had you know secret microphones on stage or something at the time. But uh, Ed, when he gets back on stage, gets into uh, Rollins' band cover of tearing, and then after like after that little improv, Dave rips it to shreds after that too, and it's just a great finish. Of course, oh, yeah. classic finish to Porch. What what more can you ask for? You could really like if you were going to call this like the end of the main set of you know of nine songs. This would be like this is the end of the main set. Like this is the showstopper yeah. here. Everything after this is going to be you know the party. Yeah, the, the mood's going to change. bootleg some kid says is this flea oh no that's not him no flea was not on stage for this but there are a lot of people that are on stage who are all these people eight guitarists and three drummers i counted i think a lot of them were members of ministry it seemed like. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I looked at the, you know, the lineup. I think I saw a couple of, of women on stage. I think probably Luscious Jackson, mm. a couple people, Lush, maybe definitely some ministry in Jesus and Mary Chain. Even Seaweed, I think, was playing this, and they're kind of a Seattle band, so I wouldn't have been surprised if, if uh, someone from Seaweed jumped in and to get in on the action. Imagine if Ice Cube were just like, all right, I'm going to take a guitar and rock out with you guys. Sure, sure. It could have happened. He, he, did- he would have been welcome. Right. Yeah. I think it was just one of those things. You don't hear about Pearl Jam's relationship with Ice Cube on this whole entire tour, but they had to have had one, right? I don't know. Yeah. I never, never heard anything about it. It's another story for another time, I suppose. But yeah, everybody comes out, you know, (laughs) you know how it is for rocking in the free world now where everybody kind of comes out and everybody gets a guitar and goes crazy. This is just, this is that on crack. And, and the way (laughs) That I compared this, and and there's lots to actually talk about the actual music and the way that the the song progresses, of course, with, and might as well get to that before I get to this point, but 
the way that the drums kind of kick in in the beginning and they it yeah, sort of builds and cr- builds into that big part and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger louder and louder and louder and that's that like bass the bass drum just dave just mm-hmm. extended just thudding that bass drum over and over again to build right that. yeah yeah very good that's the 1992 version of rocking in the free world, free world that we got. And of course, you know, when they were touring with Neil the next year, a little bit afterwards, they would kind of play it with him every night and kind of follow in his footsteps and sort of, you know, play it in the more, I guess, traditional fashion. I think you remember the 1993 VMAs where it kind of had that stomp to it, that Neil stomp. And then they sort of found, uh, middle ground after that where they were able to kind of do a little bit of Neil and do a little bit of what Pearl Jam does so this was just the beginning and it really this feels like 1992 if you know what I mean you know you talked about the the visual on stage and you there's there's a bunch of guitarists lined up kind of behind Stone just picture like Stone it looked like he was teaching a guitar class <laughs> to like five or six people like in a row it's it's a very very funny you know thing to see if you definitely go back and watch this if you haven't like just hilarious to see and they're and all the they're kind of in a line like real together and they're kind of doing like the little rock moves in in sync with each other oh it's really funny you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of when you see these videos of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people got together to play smells like teen spirit or yeah, like yeah. back in black or something Bunch like that kids. yeah yeah that's what that reminded me of a little bit yep. but i'm gonna i'm gonna make my analogy now because now you know we talk about the party atmosphere with rocking in the free world how it brings the crowd and, and the band together and whoever's on stage it's just everybody just having a good time there's a difference between that kind of rocking in the free world and this kind of rocking in the free world. This kind of rocking in the free world that you get nowadays is sort of like, you know, the end of your night at a wedding where everybody, you know, you're, you're happy, you're excited, you're celebrating the bride and groom and you know, you're, you're, you're a little tipsy and you're all just dancing and having fun together. But you know, that's, nobody's going too crazy. Like there might be one drunk uncle or one, you know, groomsman that's kind of going a little bit wild, but everybody's just kind of laughing it off. That's what rocking in the free world is like now. And it's kind of like good, clean fun, almost in a way compared to what this is, because this is a house party. This is like a, let's fucking tap the keg and let's have an all night rager. Let's go into the basement and just drink and, and do keg stands and do, you know, bong hits and everything like that. That's what this visual had to feel like uh, as compared to what rocking in the free world is now. Yeah, I can see that. So if that helps. All right. Yeah. Now, Ed, after the song says, you all better fucking vote. To keep it a free world. I agree. Please vote. Yeah, he had, he had been kind of riffing on at the end, like, the United States ain't a free place. Right. The uh-huh. United States ain't a free place. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of this very Rage Against the Machine sounding right. right there. Right. All of this are American dreams, all of which are American dreams. All right. So now, Ed, of course, after all of these people are on stage, he's now like, is anybody else back there to play? Oh, there's someone. We have, of course, Matt fucking Cameron and Chris Cornell make it to the stage. And we have the official Temple of the Dog reunion right here, which 
they did a little bit in the Virginia show on this tour. I think that was around the same time where Hunger Hunger Strike was still starting to explode as well. And yeah, uh, it's funny because just seeing Matt Cameron there and taking the stage and essentially what you're looking at is Pearl Jam. You're looking at Temple of the Dog, but the only thing that really differentiates it from being Temple of the Dog is Chris. But, you know, it, it feels totally normal with Cameron sitting there. It's not like, you know, back then, yeah, he's a special guest, but even when he's sitting in then, you're in this band, man. Like, this, you're, you're Soundgarden, and you're definitive to Soundgarden then, but you were meant to be in that spot.
it's cool to see because Temple had only played like what one or two shows back in very small, yeah, officially. like a more yeah. a rock candy or a more theater yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. So you almost like it was like, oh, well, though, you know, that'll never happen again. But then all of a sudden, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon in in Southern California in the middle of September, here you go. Like, here it is. Like, all of a sudden, like, there they are. Like, okay, cool. These are all the versions of Hunger Strike that they've done at a Pearl Jam setting. Now, they've done it before where it's like it was a one-off at like a, a get-together or something like that, or uh, again, like a rock candy show or something. I know that they did a little Temple of the Dog set back in 1991, and right. that was in rock candy, and that there's no footage or anything of that around. It seems like one of the holy grails for a lot of people, it should be at least. And then the other times that they did it, they did it at the Virginia Lollapalooza, they do it at this one. Those are the only two times in 1992 that they do one of the biggest songs that's circulating on radio. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. I'm surprised their management didn't say, go on tour in between the Pearl Jam and Soundgarden tours. I'm, I'm surprised nobody forced them to do that. The only other times you get are Santa Barbara in 2003, Gibson Amphitheater in 2009, PJ 20 and the two bridge school shows in 2014. That's it. That's all. Now, Pearl Jam has played this with other people. They played it with Slater Kinney. They played it with Ben Bridwell. They've even played it where Ed was kind of playing off the crowd a little bit and having, you know, them sing back to him. But this was not often that Chris and Ed took the stage together like this. And even Chris says it, in you know, to to preface the performance, he said, "This is a song we haven't played a lot of times, so it might be a, ra- a train wreck. We could do a cover, but we're gonna." And his his little sense of humor here, we're gonna do an MTV song instead. Which, like I said, it's all over the place. So yeah, everybody's gonna know it. Everybody knows what's coming. And I, you know, I think it's just you're seeing both of them in their prime coming together for a song like that that had that impact obviously wasn't an immediate impact because Soundgarden was still known, but still finding their way to popularity. I would say, you know, I think that, that um, ultra mega okay did pretty well, but not quite what super unknown and um, bad Black motor finger. Yeah. Black hole sun was their big, you know, coming out moment. Right, right. And Bad Motor Finger, I mean, that did well, too. You know, that had... Outshined. Outshined. Right, of course. Lots of great stuff. Jesus Christ pose, yeah. Yeah. Lots of great stuff on that record. But, yeah, they were still, at the time where Temple was, where they were creating the Temple record, they were still sort of figuring that out. And at this stage, like, when you think of songs that are just great songs and how few times they you've seen performances or heard performances of this and that this is the one that's like the two guys right in their prime. Their voices are absolutely perfect. You can't get better than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think they were thinking about the future then, but it's sort of putting it in a time capsule and just kind of preserving it for all this time and not understanding maybe that it would be important later, but now it's so much more important than it was then. If you know what I mean, mm. like it just, the, the weight of it and the importance of knowing that it exists is, is 
it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I thought it was a little strange because like they they come out and it's like, oh, we're gonna do reach down, and then they change it and do do hunger strike instead. It felt like you know, and hunger strike is obviously gets the the big reaction and felt like you would want to go out on hunger strike. I'm kind of surprised they went with like, didn't go with reach down first and then end on hunger strike. It, it almost like you have the big moment and then reach down comes in and like, you know, it's not a 10, 12 minute version, like on the record. Like I was kind of surprised that like, it felt like after this whole party show, this like final show of Lollapalooza that they, they wouldn't end on hunger strike and go with reach down instead. It was a little weird. Maybe it was a time thing. And maybe they thought like, okay, if we have time for one last, because you have to think they play reach down. Somebody could say after reach down, okay, you're done. Cause that's, I think this clocked in at eight minutes long. They could yeah. say after that, you're done and you might not get that hunger strike moment at all. So I think mm. it's them trying to get that in and then kind of going to whoever's managing the side stage and saying like, Hey, we got time for one more. And last yeah, night at the door, I don't think anybody's going to say no. True. I mean, the, the times are set, you know, they would have, you know, it'd be 40 minutes sure, or whatever, right. you know, you'd have, mm-hmm. you have two o'clock to two forty, and that's your time. So, yeah. I, I wonder if even, and I don't have any information on this. I wonder if, if Soundgarden took a little bit of chunk out of their set or had yeah, to know. because of that. Yeah, yeah, who knows? It's probably lost the time, but yeah, you're just hearing again. Both of these guys are in their prime, and just listen to Cornell.
the power. That's the raw power that he had. I sit there kind of in absolute amazement over this. I've always been a fan of, of you know, Zeppelin and Robert Plant and how, you know, right there, Cornell and Robert Plant are like neck and neck for two of the best rock and roll singers of all time. And, I, you know, in that kind of style, I don't know anybody else that can come close, to be honest. And I know you probably have a different opinion on it, but it's it's kind of hard to deny when you're talking about just the impact that these two voices have had on, on generations and, and just how, how powerful they can be when, when they take the moment. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, yeah, like I said, Soundgarden's not as high on my, on my list, but yeah, definitely, you know, you can't deny the talent. Absolutely. So, Hunger Strike is great, and you know they do get the the chance for one more. But this is really cool. What Ed's saying in between here, he said, two years ago in October, I didn't know Jeff for Stone, which, uh, yeah, they I think they had met in October. But I the the timeline of this would be very interesting to figure out, like when exactly this show was. But he said I was out here. And I think kind of is referring to in that venue. I'm not so sure, but I, it seemed yeah. like he was kind of okay. gesturing like I was right here to watch Soundgarden play. And then, you know, his last word to the crowd for this tour is, whatever you do, keep making music, keep making art, and believe in yourself. Uh, that's Eddie Vedder signing off for, two, uh, for 1992, and we'll be back with Drop in the Park, so to speak. And now we yeah. get the last, the last song for the 1992 Lollapalooza tour is reached down, like we mentioned. And again, it's just the power that you got to listen to here. It's just firing away so many different points where he can kind of get reeled down and kind of, you know, build to that moment, build to that tension. And then out of nowhere, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? It just soars and shatters. And, you know, of course, Mike solo is massive in this. Of course that makes for a massive moment. It's an eight minute long song. And, you know, we get like huge heavy drums on it with Matt. Like this is a great Matt performance too. You can't underestimate what Matt does with temple of the dog at all. It, uh, definitely a different feel than both Soundgarden and Pearl jam stuff that he did. But like, it's undeniable how good Cornell sounded on this. This is just excellent, excellent performance. Yeah, and Ed, like, just kind of standing back at his little mic, like, just helping out on the chorus, like, just mm-hmm. doing the little backup, just perfectly willing to just take the back seat and let him have the moment. Yeah, that was cool. It reminded me of watching him at PJ20, mm-hmm. just the same way, just in the background, just kind of watching in amazement that, like, I, I remember that from 20 years ago. I remember when he did that 20 years ago, and I'm still in amazement of it now. And, uh, yeah, I think... The best thing that we could do with the show is just preserve that memory of him and say that this is what made him special. This is what made people attach themselves to him. Not that just it was his voice was good. It was that he was able to emote. He was able to take some pent up frustration to tense anger and energy and able to, to belt that out and, 
you felt it. You felt some of that within yourself and you were able to kind of relate with it. And I think those are the things that make it difficult when somebody that you, I don't want to say rely on for your entertainment, but somebody that you admire for the skills that they provide does that, you know, for your entertainment, you, uh, it's definitely when, when it all kind of goes gone, it feels like you do lose a little bit of a piece of that. And, uh, of course the records and the footage and everything like that will, will last for eternity. We're hoping I don't see where, where else it would go, but yeah, it's just, um, I think that's the thing that you have to kind of hold on to here to remember and appreciate and respect who he was and what he was able to do. So tough one to get through. We're not going to rate anything. We're not going to pick any moments here. We're just going to let this speak for themselves. I just, this isn't like a a show that we're going to judge. This was just, let's talk about it because it deserved to be talked about. Chris deserved to be talked about. It's a good show. This is not an important aspect of this, but we did need to have a 200th episode set for a certain week and putting in other episodes. And there's going to be one other that is going to be total random by surprise and, you know, short, hopefully, and fill in kind of like this one is. And that's going to help us get to where we want our 200th episode to come in September. So again, like the least important aspect of that, but that's why you're not getting this in the normal spot on Wednesday. And that's why we're not really going to add any sort of uh, embellishment and uh, an achievement to this. It's just going to leave it as it is. No rating. The moment is, is just being able to know that this exists. So, all right. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the tour and we got more that's going to come on this week. Of course, Sacramento and Vegas are right in the wheelhouse. They're right around the horizon. And once those shows get finished and once I, you know, finished my, my travels, we will have a couple episodes out with our instant reactions. So that should be fun. Can't wait for that. I'm going to guess that comes out early next week. So Hope to see you all there for that. If you're interested in donating, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash live on four legs. Thank you all for tuning in and uh, be good to yourself because you deserve it. Take care. In in this falls, in disguise is no unknown. the face, lies the sleep. In my disgrace Boiling heat Summer stench Neath the black The sky still Call my name Throw cream And you scream again Black hole Summer Won't you come Wash away Won't you come, won't you come, won't you come Stuttering, cold and down, steal the warm wind tired
Heaven send hello 